Welcome to today's episode of the Lost Gardens of Heligan podcast, The Beauty in All Things. I'm Alistair Moore, Head of Gardens and Estate, and today you find me in the estate shed. So this is where the estate team gather at the beginning of each day, and it's lined with tools from post hole borers to strimmers and chainsaws. And outside, the leaves are already beginning to cover the paths, and you may hear the patter of autumnal rain on the roof of the shed. This month in the podcast, we'll be chatting with Philip McMillan Browse, horticultural heavyweight and great garden visionary for Heligan from the beginning of the restoration. And we'll be discussing the balance between ripeness and flavour in this season's apple harvest, as well as talking to the descendant of the last gardener of Heligan way back in the day, Kathleen Kendall. We'll then head out to our record-breaking Bug Hotel to meet some of its very special residents. So I am currently sitting uh, across a plain wooden table from Philip McMillan Browse, where decorating the table are a selection of beans, but also some glorious apples like Ashmead's Kernel, and we've got, what's this, Tideman's Late Orange. Philip, I've pinned you down today because it is about apples I wish to, to speak to you. And I wondered if we could just start with, where do apples come from? Well, that has always been a matter of contention for centuries. And in this country, the received wisdom was, of course, that they were developed from the local crab apple. But in fact, as has been shown recently with modern scientific advances in DNA analysis and all that sort of thing, it's quite clear that they aren't from there. And in fact, the domestic apple, as we would recognise it now, actually originates in the Tian Shan Mountains in the sort of peripheries of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, China, in that real midi, big mountains mm. in, right in the middle of Asia. Mm. And that there are fruit forests there where you can see apples growing, some of which produce fruit which you would find difficult to turn down in even the concept of modern varieties that we wow. grow now. And the idea of a fruit forest is is an, a highly attractive one. Yeah, well, the, the, these trees, and they're not only apples, there are pears, cherries and things like that. Not all of them as developed as the apple would be. And then you find, of course, that there are distinctions in the rate of maturity of apples which gives us this long season of availability which is associated with the dissemination of the seeds i.e the fruit maturity which attracts something to eat them and then produces you the seed some long way away <laughs> which has already got some nice fertility associated with its development and you can have the early season crops were taken by bears and moved, and the late season crops were used by horses and moved, which shows you how sweet some of them must be because a bitter one would no doubt in any horse 
certainly upset the apple cart. Upset the apple cart in the race. Well, and if we fast forward rapidly, of course, the apple didn't make its way to this country through bears or horses. No, um, humanity, of course, brought it. And gradually, you could say to begin with, probably they came to Europe via the Silk Road and gradually, as it were, ingressed across Europe. And basically, as far as one can ascertain, apples would not grown those sort of apples were not grown in this country till the Romans came. Mm. And there's one variety which is still available called Decio, D-E-C-I-O, which is reputed to be a variety that was introduced by the Romans. And then apples sort of remained in this country, but without much further interest and development during what we call the Dark Ages. Uh, they were still grown and maintained in monastery gardens and things like that, and the sort of usual uh, orchards that were associated with monasteries. And one of the interesting things in an, in a previous life, long ago, I had uh, got involved with a monastery on Charwood. Seems very unlikely somehow. And um, because I'd been, I was... A horticulturist, I was approached by the monk who was interested in orchard production and they, their orchard was beginning to come to an end and what would they replace mm-hmm. it with? And I got involved and you would be amazed how big the orchards in monasteries have to be. If you're thinking about the Dark Ages, it's not like they got half a dozen trees. Mm-hmm. They probably got three, four, five acres mm-hmm. because these monks are vegetarians. They're not vegans, they're vegetarians. Mm -hmm. And so apples, fruit generally, pears, cherries, anything, but largely apples because of the yield are the major crop that they grow for that purpose, as well as having large, what you and I would call market garden almost. And though they may have been vegetarians, they may not have been unaccustomed to alcoholic drinks, perhaps. No, no. And cider. Yeah, and I mean, they are—they were vegetarians because this friend of mine, who used to explain to me why I walk around with what I would call pot bellies, and they referred to it as Benedictine bellies, <laughs> because they had vigorous daily jobs on the farm or on the orchards or on the on the vegetable garden and things, and they were physically having to need a lot of energy. Therefore, being vegetarians, they had to eat a heck of a lot of material to generate the energy that they would need for their day's work. And so, if you look back and think, then and people say, oh, well, of course, they survived in the monastery orchards. Now, a monastery orchard would be big by our standards. You know, and, and just, I sort of touched briefly then on the idea of apples, not just as a fruit, but as a alcoholic beverage and um, could would you describe to me the difference between uh, say a cider apple and a dessert or culinary apple I mean what in terms of, of folk developing these different varieties what what were they after and what were the differences well that's not an easy question to answer because the development of apples for culinary use is pretty limited to the British Isles. You don't get culinary varieties of apples in Europe. 
that. If you look at all the French recipes for tartare mm. and all those things, they're all on sweet apple, dessert apple. Some apples are dual purpose, and for various reasons with different textures, some might have been preferentially used for cooking, but they weren't designed mm-hmm. as cooking apples. So that's peculiar to this country. Now, of course, because there is an apparent market in this, you can find that there are orchards in Chile which are grown especially to export brownies to this country. So what about cider apples? Mm. Well... Mm. I don't know a lot about the origins of how cider evolved, but I think probably nobody does because it's so ancient a tradition that it would be before the days of writing these things Mm. down. But to make cider, you need a balance of bitterness, acidity, sweetness and so on. And various varieties of apples have been selected for their various contents, so you get bitter apples, bittersweet apples, bitter sharp apples, sweet apples. And then it's a question of balancing those in a recipe to produce the cider for your taste. And again, you have to remember the quantities of those apples that had to be produced, say, back from the Middle Ages, when the population of this country started to expand. I mean, I'm not talking about huge numbers, mm-hmm. but... That created its own problem with the availability of suitable drinking water because more and more there was pollution and therefore it was not good to drink the local water. So that things like ale or cider were produced depending on what the product was that you could grow Mm -hmm. in the area Mm -hmm. to make it. And cider was very widely grown, as indeed if you went into the West Midlands, Perry had the same... Um, place for pears but again the farm where they they were grown had to have large orchards because they were producing cider which was part of the remuneration of the farm worker it wasn't just money there would be accommodation and there would be cider so you didn't have to drink the water and if it was ale then you also had things like small ale and indeed cider they produced a thing called ciderkin which was made from the second a second pressing, uh, which produced a low-alcohol sort of cider, which again allowed you to eat, drink a lot when you were working without actually getting the word is inebriated. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, without question, the, the, the better your cider as a farmer, the yep. more likely it was you were going to get the better labourers. And come. also you would have a better market because they also hope to produce some for profit. So the really good farmers who produce very good quality cider used to talk in, in selling hogsheads of cider. And how many gallons in a hogshead? It's not fixed, but it's somewhere about 48 to 52 gallons. Wow, keep hogshead is a, a type of mm. barrel, uh, but it doesn't have a defined exact shape or size or... A capacity. But a, a, let us say a sufficiency of cider yes. within. But that gives you some mm. idea of the quantities yeah. that were being produced and how important the apple was in medieval, Middle Ages, right through really until the in, beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. We're talking about beginnings of the 18th century, I mm. suppose, aren't we? No, absolutely. Well, I was fascinated. I was reading about the early treatments of scurvy and how even with the minuscule, I'm just thinking about 
nutrition and heritage, what we would describe now, heritage varieties of apple. And even the minute traces of vitamin C still in cider from apples mm. back in the 17th and 18th century, there was, it was noted a marked recovery from the symptoms of scurvy as a result, which they mistakenly understood to be the acidity rather than, mm. than, than the nu nutrition themselves. And I think that's what I'm getting at, is that, that very often today, that idea of the link between ripeness and flavour isn't one that we, we make. I mean, the classic example is Cox's Orange Pippin. I mean, how often have you eaten in recent years a Cox's Orange Pippin off the supermarket shelf, which was worth eating? I mean, well, you, you be... get them in October, yeah, and absolutely. they're not ready. They've no flavour, nothing. And they're not going to mature if they're picked that early. But that doesn't. But they still, for years, sold on the fact they were Cox's Orange Pippins and said they had to be great. Yeah. But they weren't. But I can remember going back into the when I was at Hadlow College. They had a very large fruit department with Roger Warwicker in charge. You know all about Roger Warwicker because he's the man who established Gala as a premier right premier okay. variety. And that but, would have been, Gala would have been, what sort of date are we thinking? Oh, it, I'm not sure if it's late 1930s or just post-war. Right. But they had extensive, in those days, Cox's Orange Orchards. Yeah. And we, Helen and I, used to buy a case, a box, or, yeah. you know, a couple of bushels yeah, yeah. of uh, Cox's Orange Pippin and they were never available until the beginning of December wow. and you had them so that they were just right and were running up to Christmas when you really wanted some luscious fruit yeah. and then Cox's Orange Pippin are unassailable so why haven't why don't they aren't they still there it's because plants uh, trees like Gala, Pink Lady, Jazz, all these modern varieties produce such huge yields and uniform-sized fruits okay. and good-coloured fruits. They're nearly all red, aren't mm. they, and sort of pink mm. or something yeah. like that. They're not green. I mean, even Golden Delicious is on the decline, isn't yeah. it? There are a few people who like it, but mm. it's not the major fruit on the supermarket shelves. They're all these red, white-fleshed, crisp-fleshed, sweet mm. Sweet, sweet varieties. You have to remember, of course, that going back in the Middle Ages, the diet you had was not sweet. And therefore, your mm. palate was more geared to things that you could pick up the flavour, which were not obscured by sweetness. Yeah. Because as soon as you put honey or sugar into something, it Absolutely. masks the yeah. flavour. So that varieties prior to the First World War, nearly all do not suit the modern taste because they are not sweet. That's the crucial point. The other crucial point that your friend Leon Terry yes, had brought up is of, yeah, is, of course, that they have discovered that in the process of breeding these modern varieties, they have lost all the other health-giving virtues of the old-fashioned apple, which gave rise to the apple a day keeps the doctor away because you had various polyphenols and leucosanthins and what he called fluoridin. Dihydrochalcones. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they have impo impo impossible 
biochemical names. <laughs> but what the crucial point is, is showing that the one variety of these heritage varieties is that they still carry all that goodness which keeps you healthy and why eating apples is of benefit to you. Brilliant. Philip, I could carry on for weeks uh, conversing with you. You're, you've gone pale at the thought of it. But I think, I think the general message is ripeness, but also the importance of heritage varieties in terms of the nutritional benefits from that delicious fruit. Philip, thank you very much indeed, and I hope we will speak again soon. So I find myself in the head gardener's office with a lovely uh, vase full of dahlias and a few hydrangeas uh, by the window. But the greatest flower in here today is Kathleen Kendall. And Kathleen, I just wondered if you might say a little bit about yourself, about your connection with Heligan mm -hmm. and why you're here today in particular. Yeah, well, um, I was born on the estate in the Lower Lodge. And, um, and, of course, obviously, Dad worked up here. We used to come up and help to bunch flowers and things like that, pick um, currants, red currants, black currants, come in here and, and uh, have crib with him. <laughs> <laughs> and today we planted a quinodendron as a replacement for one that used to be here many years ago but got lost over time. No, well, lovely. And we're planting it in particular mm -hmm. because of who your father was and obviously the, the, the association with the head gardener's office. Could you give me an idea of, of when he first came to, to work at the gardens? Yes. First of all, they lived at Nan Sladron in a lodge. He was a gardener there. And then this opportunity came up and he, they moved into the lodge and he started work here. So, and he was here for 25 years. <laughs> Good heavens. And you yourself were here for a number of years. Yeah. And if I'm right, if it's not too indiscreet of me um, to ask when you were born... Yeah, 1940, April 1940, 82 years ago. <laughs> well, it, only 82 years ago, I would say, uh, Kathleen. And what are your memories of the garden? Oh, lots, really. And one thing I do remember was the cork tree on the end here, on the end of that little wall. It was, well, there were two, one there and one bit further along, I think. I'm not exactly sure where that one was, but I know because I've got a piece of that. You've got a, uh, yes. you've got a piece of the yeah. original cork? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like I say, we used to help Dad bunch flowers, pick fruit and come in and have crib or dinner with him. Sometimes Mum would bring up pasty for his dinner and we'd have it in here. <laughs> oh, well, I bet. I think that was probably a favoured day, wasn't it? Pasty day. Yeah, and uh, like I said, just now the tomatoes. I remember the tomatoes in the greenhouse. And, of course, there was another greenhouse on the other side there. That's gone now, wasn't it? And the figs. I remember the figs and the peach house and the pond. There used to be two big yew trees there by the pond, one by the pond, one down by the gateway. Goldfish in the pond used to be, yeah. 
And can I ask, you described the glass house that used to be there and yeah. you can still see the sort of footprint yeah. of it. Can you remember what was grown in there? Uh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that because... <laughs> Because I can't really remember. <laughs> That's about the only thing yeah. that I, I really can't remember what he grew in that one. No, I don't really. Well, that's, that's, it's always good to have these things to pursue in the mists of history, isn't it? And in the sundial garden, what memories do you have of that? Oh, yes. I, yeah, I remember that. And um, I brought my friend up here when she was staying on holiday with us and we each took a photo and when they replaced the sundial they used my photo to line it up well i, I if it wasn't such a horrible day i would say that because there's no chance of us seeing the sundial in action today not least i think there was a semi-eclipse today um but the, the as you say the photo was used as part of the restoration yes, of the garden. Yes, um, it was my friend's photo that I took on there. But um, in the book that Tim Smith wrote, he said it was Mrs. Thomas, but it wasn't Mrs. Thomas. It was my. It was June, wasn't it? Yeah, June. Mm. June. Can you remember her surname? Just yes. so we... Brocklebank. That's a good name, June Brocklebank. Yeah. We'll we'll take that, and and of course. Uh, when you were born, the last Squire Tremaine was still... Yes, um, yes, yes. And I seem to remember, did he not come and visit you at he some did. point? When I was ill, he came down and brought a jar of calf's foot jelly. Mm. How delicious. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that now, but at the time I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> I think today I wouldn't know whether to rub it on or, or eat it. <laughs> But it, it certainly didn't do you any harm. No, it no. didn't do me any harm, no. No, I remember him well, yes, mm. I do. But he, he died, I was only about seven, I think, when he died. But yes, and then, of course, it was the Williamsons. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, I've got happy memories. And the commander and Mrs Thomas, we came up to see the Thomases because uh, Mrs Thomas came to our wedding, but commander was too ill but she wanted us to come up and see him. And we did, and didn't we? We went in the big house. Dad came with us, um, but nobody had any film in the camera. So the, the uh, people that lived in the flats, they came out and threw rice over us. <laughs> <laughs> How fantastic. Well, what a shame that that hadn't been yeah, sort of... Because he, did, he died, didn't he, not yeah. long after. Oh. Yeah. yeah. It was a pity, really. I bitterly regretted that, but... It's one of those things, isn't it? Indeed. And you very generously came today, not only with the lovely Crinodendron hookerianum, but you came bearing some other plants. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, that's um, wisteria. Over 60 years ago, Dad um, layered um, a couple for, for me because we were getting married and I wanted a garden. And, um, yeah, and it's still growing. I've still, we've still got it. And I've layered some to bring back. For the, that's from the original Wisteria. Uh, that's uh, that is so kind and so um, well. It's really significant for the gardens because if you'd say a little bit about where the original one was, yes. and you know that 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 I don't think what, there's one there anymore, is there? No, no, I don't. I don't know what there is planted on that wall now. I didn't. Um, there's a 
a fuchsia lady boothby right. which is a very aggressive there's uh there's also a, a lovely clethra actually but if you just describe which wall it is well it's the wall right opposite where we've just planted the crinodendron all along that wall it grew and that's the wall at the sort of lower end of the melon yard yes. so really significant bit of the garden that's right. and the wisteria was a particular favorite of yours yes it was it was beautiful when it came out yeah well we shall have i'm uh, I, we shall have wisteria again <laughs> and not only will we have it there but because you've given us three plants two. um two it was supposed to be three but one got damaged. <laughs> <laughs> we may have to re-record this, Kathleen. <laughs> I'm going to say, because you've given us 15 plants, <laughs> no, because you've given us two plants, we can have one, the melon yard, right. but I might sneak one down into the jungle as well oh, right. and have it wrapping itself it up. A, it would. Yeah. So yeah. look magnificent. Yeah, so. So your your legacy will be spread throughout the garden. If I live long enough, I'll come back and see it. <laughs> of course you will. Will you come back and take some cuttings? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, Kathleen, it's been a real pleasure, and thank you so much for bringing... Well, thank uh, you for letting me do that. It's uh, wonderful, because, yeah, it's, you know, in Dad's memory, it's lovely to do that. No, well, it, the the honour is all ours, so thank you very much indeed, and I look forward to seeing you back here again soon. Yes, yeah, hopefully. Better <laughs> weather, hopefully. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Cheerio. Bye. Well, the, the view I'm looking at at the moment is uh, certainly quite an unusual one for Heligan. I'm standing outdoors in a narrow man-made corridor surrounded by uh, logs with holes drilled in them, bales of straw, collections of old bricks and uh, broken plant pots. So it may not sound a site of great beauty or even of great natural value, but I find myself in a palace. This is Buggingham Palace, the world's longest and largest insect hotel, and I find myself standing with Jerry Lee. Jerry, hello there. And hello. could I ask you to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Jerry Lee. I'm a beetle recorder. And uh, I've been very, uh, very grateful to be allowed to have a look at some of the beetles uh, at Buggingham Palace. Wonderful, Jerry. And um, bearing in mind Buggingham Palace has only really been here for, gosh, about less than a year can i ask you what have you found so far well so far we've had about 40 species and which is great bearing in mind this is not really the the prime the prime season uh but i i suppose one of the most interesting ones is a, a, a small tree fungus beetle called uh strigosis bicornis which lives uh, on bracket fungi of which there are absolutely loads to see here and that is a new record for Cornwall and probably only been recorded in Britain uh, 20 times in the last 100 years. So it's quite a special, special creature. That's amazing. And as you say, this isn't really the prime time for, for finding beetles. No, the best time is around um, April, May. That's when all the beetles come emerge from their various uh, homes. 
and start flying about looking for new places to live. And the, the wonderful thing about uh, Buggin Palace is that it provides so many different microhabitats and different sorts of places for beetles to live that it's just really a rep replicating an old woodland environment. And uh, I'm very hopeful that next year there'll be some ex more, many more exciting finds to, to come. That's wonderful, Jerry. I, what brings me such pleasure is the fact that it's, it's so new. And yet it seems so extraordinary that there would be already this kind of range of guests uh, uh, in the hotel. Yeah, well, it's in a, in a very, very uh, adventitious place in that we're surrounded by lots of mature trees, lots of old woodland that's been here centuries, if not for almost forever, uh, or what you might call relic bits of woodland and parkland. But also... Um, it's created from the environment around it so that uh, you, you've brought in lots of, lots of trees, lots of different bits of fungi from the surrounding environment. So it's kind of accumulated evidence from round about. So it's not that surprising really in that uh, it's replicating and sort of almost condensing the fauna that we'll, we'll find all the way around in the, uh, in the surrounding area. Wonderful. And you were um, you, you you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the sensitivity of the antennae of of the beetles, and in particular um, the marvelous rarity you found. That you know, so I'm trying to avoid actually saying its scientific name because I can't remember it. <laughs> yeah, Strigosis bicornis. That's yeah, um, yeah. They've got amazingly sensitive uh, antennae, which can actually detect minute particles of chemicals from great distances. That's how they find their way around. So whilst some of the old wooden beetles are, are, are notoriously poor at recolonizing areas, so that if you lose them completely, that's it, they've gone forever, um, within a, a, a certain area, they can find new habitat. So that, for example, um, many beetles can detect the chemical bouquets given off by trees or by logs or by bits of fungi. Uh, and then find them to actually breed in them. So they are incredibly sensitive and uh, skilled at finding the right conditions to live in. Amazing. Well, my uh, sensitive antennae tell me that um, uh, Toby, our wildlife officer, is approaching, and I think he's got something pretty interesting in the fungi department to show us. Well, let's pop over and see him. So, Toby, Wildlife Coordinator at Heligan, what have we got here? So, what we're looking at right now is the Hericium erinaceus, which is called the uh, lion's mane fungi. And what's so special about this fungi is that it's actually one of the only four um, species in the United Kingdom with uh, top-level protection. And it is, um, looking at it, it's, it's, it's right at the centre of um, a large log, it's a beech log, and it's probably the size of a, and this is going to sound very bourgeois, it's probably about the size of a croquet ball, and uh, um, it is extraordinary. So the, at the, the top is a sort of white, spongy, typical kind of fungal uh, uh, material, but as you as as you go lower down it's just a mass of fine 
creamy white tendrils. And just as the, the name that uh, Toby has given, the lion's mane, it almost, I'm not going to touch it, um, but almost you could sort of run your fingers through it. It's just quite extraordinary. And Toby, the, in terms of its life cycle, what can you tell me about it? So the sort of the actual main bit we're sort of talking about. So this is where it actually releases its spores. So from what I've sort of read up on it, um, it doesn't necessarily come back every year. It might have a stage where on this particular log we're looking at now, it might go over this year and then sort of, it might even leave two years and then come back again. But we're hoping with these spores that it's releasing that they will hopefully get some more and have a bit of a population going. Wonderful. And I think one of the reasons, sadly, it is protected is that not only is it edible, but it's also um, valued for its medicinal properties as well. Is that right? It is, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's got some pretty high value, which is why we're just being a bit precautious about it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, well, I did see the, there was one found in um, the, the New Forest uh, 10, 15 years ago, and unfortunately, people did come and um, um, re remove it. But we are so lucky because not only are they, you'll only ever see 10 or 15 in the year throughout the entire country, but we have two here at Heligan. And I think why we're all so pleased is that notion and that they're. they're around the insect hotel, around Buggy and Palace, that if you if you make an effort, if you try to to make an impact on um, biodiversity in, in any way, however small, it can have a lasting effect. And it's so extraordinary that this has happened so quickly. So, Toby, looking at this wondrous bit of fungus what is the next step with it what's going to happen so right now this one will roughly last around sort of into november so really we haven't really got that much longer with it so that's about a week yes yeah correct so it's at the moment now it's kind of like it's most mature so it will be releasing its spores all around obviously we can't really see them but hopefully it will and as it does that it will sort of start to go over and then hopefully fingers crossed it'll be with us again and we might even have a few more wonderful and i notice around the base of this section of tree that it's it's on this this huge log there are a number of holes drilled in can you just tell us a little bit about those yeah of course so we've drilled these holes for numerous reasons really so we've got some different sized holes there. So the main reason that we did it really was to attract insects. So sort of like your solitary bees, your beetles, your wood lice, all that sort of thing. Um, but the other interesting thing to see when the mushroom does go over is it'll be pretty interesting to see if it's actually come, you know, formed out of one of these holes. And we've it may have been lying dormant within the wood and we've sort of released it unknowingly. Wonderful. Well, you're, you're creating a mushroom farm. But I was going to just ask Jerry again. Toby was talking about the solitary bees, etc. You found a few solitary wasps, have you not? Yes, there's a just up the, just behind you there in the the logs with the lots of little holes in. There's a, a little colony of uh, one of the 
a solitary wasps, one of the dark ones, black ones. Uh, and although uh, it was the end of the season, they, was, they were coming and going with, with quite regularly. And uh, I think next year when the season's in full s- swing, I think there might be lots of them because all these holes that Toby's helped to create uh, in the end, edge, ends of logs will be superb sites for solitary bees and wasps, and uh, as well as beetles, obviously. So I think there's something to look forward to there. just shows you how you can create a sort of optimum habitat for these, these animals um, in a very short time. And really without too much effort as well. Don't tell Pat that, because <laughs> he felt there was a lot of effort going into this. Well, thank you both so much, and I can guarantee we will be returning to Buggingham Palace in the very near future, definitely in May, when it sounds like we'll be overrun with beetles and solitary bees and wasps and uh, who knows what else. So thank you both so much, and I hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of the Lost Gardens of Helicon podcast. For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, heligan.com. And if you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Many thanks and see you next time.